Is it possible to say we're hearing a tale of two pilgrims on a journey as the storyteller comes upon a fellow seeker who's walking along the road and she asks to join him as he heads toward Woodstock, each with reasons for being on that road, he trying to set his soul free as his defined aim, and she, because of her confusion about life and living, I don't know who I am, she sings, but she does know that taking to the road, searching, and experiencing are the only recourse, because, as we know, life is for learning. And if she doesn't know who she is as an individual, she does know and proclaims the wellspring of humankind, humans and galaxies sharing the same kinds of elements as research shows no longer do exploding galaxies capture our imaginations, though, but bombs exploding and killing and maiming. We've sold our souls and searched to free them, as perhaps the child of God on the road with her does. She also knows that somehow, some way, we've got to get ourselves back to the garden, to that place of innocence where the balance is right. But how? But where? Is it even possible for more than a moment in time? We're about to meet a traveler who set out for Woodstock 53 years ago, a young musician who didn't know who he was, but who has become committed to the notion that life is for learning, and who has continued following the path not in the defined way of the sojourner on the way to set his soul free by surrendering perhaps to the intoxicating rhythms of the rock and roll bands at Bethel, New York, but rather a sojourner sensitive to the rhythms of life and open to the experiences that would change him fundamentally each turn of the spiral until, in the most astonishing irony, he would wind up back in the garden. 
which is the story of the Great Rift Valley in East Africa, often cited as the cradle of humankind, a kind of Eden where scientists trace the origins of human beings. Charles Cantalupo invites us not just to read about his journey, but to, in his persistent poetic rhythms, experience something of that open-ended pilgrimage. The Woodstock Sandal and Further Steps has been recently issued by Africa World Press. Dr. Cantalupo is Distinguished Professor Emeritus of English, Comparative Literature, and African Studies at Penn State Schoolkill. He received his B.A. from Washington University, St. Louis, and he graduated Phi Beta Kappa. He returned to New Jersey and received his M.A. and Ph.D. from Rutgers University. He has three book-length collections of poetry. His memoir, Joining Africa, From Anthills to Asmara, A Story of Poets and Poetry in Africa, won the Next Generation Indie Book Award in 2012. With funding from the Ford and Rockefeller Foundations and the World Bank, he co-chaired the seven-day conference and festival Against All Odds, African Languages and Literatures into the 21st Century in Asmara, Eritrea in 2000. We had a chance to speak by phone with Dr. Cantalupo about the Woodstock sandal, and we wondered whether he thinks about those days at this time each year. I could tell you it is kind of now, but it wasn't for probably 50 years, for a long time. I really didn't think back to Woodstock very much, other than in a fairly kind of jovial, ha-ha, wasn't it fun to be with my friends away? And it wasn't until I spoke with someone who was compiling a book of essays on Woodstock, and we were speaking actually in another context about the writings of uh, Gugi Wafiango, because he writes on um, the Kenyan writer also. And I, I just dropped something, or he dropped something about Woodstock, and we both admitted to each other that we were there. And I said, yeah, we were there. He said, well, I'm doing a book. Would you write, like to write an essay? And Eric, I frankly thought, gosh, I don't know if I want to think about it that much. It's, I don't think it's really as important to give it all this time. But I did the essay. And in the course of writing the essay, it just brought back so much that after the essay was finished, I, I felt bereft. I wanted to keep doing it. So I thought, well, I'm going to change this into a poem. And I rewrote the essay as a poem. And I gave him the essay, gave him the poem, he said, oh, no, I really want to publish the poem. And since then, I really had to kind of write into realizing, oh, my God, this was, this was really important to me. Why have I been kind of putting it aside for all these years? And what comes through is the sense that you and your youth, you many times talk about what you don't know or not knowing or being naive or innocent. Yes. And that's a wonderful way to start a quest. Yes. I don't know. And I've, I've realized over the years that Woodstock was important because that was the first time I realized that kind of paradigm of thinking and writing about what I don't know. In that case, it was the experience. But since then, you had mentioned the whole Conrad experience and trying to learn Western civilization, and uh, which I tried to do. 
And then when I was in Jericho in Israel and then subsequently in the National Gallery in Egypt, I had that kind of experience that you described of the scales falling from my eyes, realizing what I didn't know. And that's the key to the second part of the title, The Further Steps. Woodstock is a kind of an archetype or a paradigm for, for not knowing, but it just doesn't stop at Woodstock. Woodstock was the first one. So the Woodstock sandal is a sandal of many sandals. And uh, that, that, that is kind of marked through the other poems in the book and in some of the uh, autobiography that is, that is in the poem, in the way that it would be impossible to be wearing a sandal from 1969 without it falling apart and being an, a rather unpleasant thing to put on your foot. It's been one sandal after sandal after sandal after sandal. With this life now in Eastport, the latest version of the Woodstock sandal. Look where you are and the beauty that's there and where you've been and what you have to share with us and encourage us and give us courage as well, because you've been willing to take the risk, to be open, to take the next step. Well, you know, I think nobody is born with knowledge. Uh, My children, both my wife and I are English professors and writers, and my children did not come out speaking paragraphs. They had to learn writing. They had to learn language. And this is, this is something that I think is really key, not knowing. You know, sometimes, though, Erica, I almost feel a little embarrassed because I'll be with colleagues or I'll think of people reading my work and of them thinking or saying, oh, God, this guy doesn't know this. I mean, what's, what's the matter with him? Should I even, even be reading him? Uh, just in working, for example, with Googie Wafiango, I really barely knew anything about African literature when I actually interviewed him for the first time, and I had to learn it. And as I learned it, I loved it. Uh, I don't mind that. I, I think we all can be in that position, not be embarrassed, and learn a lot. And uh, I could tell whenever I talk with you, you love learning, you love new things, I love learning. It's not that they eliminate the old things. It's not an either-or, but it's an, it's an ever-richer you know, quest and story to tell. Uh, and why not? Why not? Why should we stop? When I don't have a sandal anymore, a new, a new Woodstock sandal to wear, well, that will be the end, I guess. But all this opening up, this risk-taking isn't easy, and you weave all kinds of experiences together as we go with you on your journey. You don't leave out the hard parts of life Times when folks feel the need to protest, to rise up in the face of injustice, and you tell us about what you learned when you were at Washington University in St. Louis, and there was commotion, and you learned something about yourself in how you handled the possibility that you could be arrested. So you show us the fully complicated nature of life and living. It, 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 it is a struggle, and while in art, one wants to give it form and shape and, and coherence and even style because art should give pleasure as much as it teaches. Uh, but it is a personal struggle to, to have moved from writing a book about Hobbes and then to uh, get to Egypt or get to, uh, to see Kilimanjaro on the road to uh, Tanzania. The whole world is taken away from you, and it, you do have to just march and put one foot in, in front of, of the other, 
but with a faith that, that you'll be okay because uh, uh, you have been before and, and people will be there for you. And, but you're, you're, really, you're very, very right in that. It's something that sometimes doesn't come out. But each step is a kind of crucible in that respect. And uh, you have to take the risk. I'm not that risky, but sometimes when people say, oh, you've done all this stuff in Africa, uh, you've been so, so brave, I, I really almost kind of shy away from that. But I know that when people think of my going to Eritrea and what they hear about Eritrea and all, they conceive of it as, as something that is fraught in some way. It is, but what isn't, ultimately? It seems there's a very pivotal segment where you're talking with us about the power of your encounter with Dante and the Divine Comedy. And it's not just the breadth of what he brings into the poem in terms of content, but how he writes it using the terza rima, a rhyming verse form. And that encounter, you tell us, had a tremendous impact on you and maybe gave you a sense of the power you'd want your own poems to have. Yes, I can simply say yes, because reading Dante for me as a young man was a transformative experience. Uh, he combined religion, politics, art, uh, personal struggle, uh, so many things, and he did it in terza rima, and always with that sense of style and an artifice. And yes, that certainly did stick with me. And while you're right, I, I, I mean, I've done Terzarima in English, and I think it can work, and some great writers have, like Shelley. But every line in the Woodstock sandal is in the same metrical pattern. It doesn't necessarily sound that way because I labor to not make it sound to thumb to thumb to thumb. But every line is a, a form which I've developed myself and which the uh, person who wrote the introduction, Professor Alden Nielsen, talks about. It's a form of dactylic hexameter, and I don't want to get technical and in the weeds of prosody right now, but it has a pattern of accents and unaccents and lengths of syllables and meter. Every line in the poem, in the book, has that. And uh, it's a little bit obsessive, but so is terza rima, and so is iambic pentameter, and I think all form is. So, uh, yes, Dante in that respect is, is, is really at a beginning for a lot of poets because he had such a powerful form at a time when powerful form and vernacular language, that is writing in a language of Italian or French, in his case Italian, when that was just starting. And while Latin had lots of forms, vernacular language didn't. So he, he really did change the air we breathe as writers. I think that there's a kind of cumulative effect in Woodstock Sandal that feels varied and fresh and new and spontaneous and therefore gives us, I used the word at the start, experiences along the way, actual experience, not just with our minds, but it has a physical effect. Well, I'm very glad. I'm very glad that it has that effect on you because uh, that is intended. Uh, I guess one of our greatest writers in English, American writers, that is Edgar Allan Poe, was very committed to the presence of music in English in the way that you describe the cumulative effect and how it can take you over. Music does that very, very much. And, my daughters are real musicians. They went to conservatory and play violin. But I, as an amateur musician, I kind of write about that a little bit, the whole rock and roll thing when I was a young man, a bit tongue-in-cheek. But it also was formative because it makes you 
Uh, it makes me feel about a great poem, whether it's Poe or, or Dickinson or any poet, should always have the thrill of hearing a great Rolling Stones song when you're driving down the interstate at a fairly good speed. You should have that that sense of rhythm and power. So I'm, I'm glad that the poem conveys that to you. You know, someday I, I'd like it if poets would pick up the form and do something with the line that no doubt they could do that I can't do. So I like that. I really believe in the music of a thing. Otherwise, write prose. And even prose has its own music, but not that regular music like what you've described. Another aspect of the journey is the various cultures and civilizations that you explore. And we delve with you into the Greeks, where you embrace the persona of Orpheus, the legendary poet and musician. Yes. You know, it's not very fashionable these days, but I'm not an either-or kind of person. Uh, I went and tried to learn Western art and European culture, and it brought me to Egypt and African culture. One didn't cancel the other. In fact, one enhances the other, because we know now that there was a lot of trade going back and forth between these places. I used Orpheus as a way to overcome grief in my own life. And I, I value mythology so much because, to me, they're really stories that psychologically capture are the archetypes that human beings, just by the reason that we live, that we all go through. We have our Orphic moments, we have our Oedipal moments, we have our Dionysian moments, we have our Apollonian moments, we, we have our transformations and beasts into flowers and, and that kind of thing. So the Orpheus thing was very important, and I, I, for me, a lesson as a younger poet that the myths were really personal and that they're a way of expressing a lot of the uh, emotions that are universally human, whether it's in Eritrea or whether it's in Thessalonica. I, I don't like to make these, these identity distinctions. I, I really see one like the other. And you mentioned Poe, and one of the things that we experience with you in your section on Poe is the notion of slavery and race and the market and the flesh. And then we travel with you ultimately to Africa itself. So that's a subject that is so timely today. And what you help us see is the richness of the language, that we all emerge from the Rift Valley ourselves. Yes. That Rift Valley is a place, and I've been there in Eritrea when it leads right into the Red Sea, and I've been there further south in, in Malawi. And what you're describing is why I wrote my memoir in 2012, Joining Africa. That was precisely about how me, as the person I am, in terms of my education, my cultural orientation, everything I was, how I went to Africa and how by, you might say, putting Africa in the foreground and kind of putting myself in the background, I was able to join, which in Tigrinya, which is a language of Eritrea, means actually writing and a kind of writing of poetry. That book was key to my articulating why a European or a white culture, an Asian culture, South America, and Africa can join not in a kind of, of naive way, but can be culturally interactive and mutually enriching down to the individual. And sometimes, Erica, I have to say, when I look around and read the headlines and see what our culture is these days, I wonder if my book 
has failed. I hope it hasn't failed in the long run, but right now it seems as if it hasn't really captured where we've gone. The book came out in 2012. Ten years later, I worry that the book hasn't really had the effect I wanted it to because it's not about the vision. It's not about mutually exclusive identities. It's about being who we are, but embracing one another imaginatively, culturally, sexually, in, in all the ways, all the ways that there are. Are there obstacles to that? Of course there are. Of course there are. But when was there an obstacle that a loving human being didn't want to overcome? So uh, that is in my book on 2012, Joining Africa. Hopefully, hopefully someday it'll land and have more of an effect than it is right now. And just the power of language, which sometimes now in these days gets trivialized in the way it's used on the Internet or all yes. the, the cliches. Yes, it does. It, it does in that respect. But here we've talked about the rhythm of language. We've talked about the cultural identification of language. Language is, is almost a kind of conversation that we have with the ghosts of, of the past. I mean, when you read Conrad, when I read Ovid, those writers are speaking with us when we sit down in a chair and read them at night. And it's this fantastic chamber, echo chamber, long chamber, a rocket chamber, whatever it is. And to not be tapping into that uh, is, is really to miss something. It's like, it's like only knowing the music of our own time or only of the last 10 or 20 years and as you know, I write about that a lot in the Woodstock Sandal, too. I, I love the music of the 60s and all that, but I kept finding new music and different music and new music. So uh, I think, as I say, somewhere, uh, if it was The Who and if it was Hendrix and if it was uh, Joni Mitchell then, well, now it would be Steve Reich or, or John Tavener or John Luther Adams or any other number of, of contemporary composers. Again, it's not the original music. It's the music that just keeps coming and coming and coming, one sandal after another sandal, one note after another note that I'm committed to, and that really keeps me going. And, and it's a pleasure and it's a fire that I want more people to enjoy and to have because it's so life-enhancing. But what about beauty in our lives, Charles? We understand you've been translating Eritrean stories of the horrors of the recent conflict and making those stories into poems. So you're immersing yourself in the unimaginable terrors and the ugliness and destruction of war and that war brings about. Well, what about beauty? Is there any room for beauty in our world? That, that's such an important question because I think when we forget beauty, we lose a lot of our humanity. When we don't give someone a life or an opportunity for beauty, it's, it's a terrible, almost injustice. It's so politically wrong. One of the reasons I'm here in Eastport in Maine is to have beauty come into my eyes. It makes me, it's a, it's a kind of oblivion. It's a kind of inspiration. It's a kind of oneness with the world. It's, it's romantic, in a sense, with a capital R, as in the 19th century poets and some of the German philosophers before them. But it is such a fundamental, I almost want to say human right when you ask the question, uh, the way you do. 
because it, it is such a value. You know, there's the old Keats line about truth and beauty. <laughs> we certainly live in a time now where to say the word truth or something is, this is the truth, or it, it's challenged so much, it's appalling. It's deeply disturbing. Let us hope that at least with beauty, people who can reflect and people who can love and people with children and, and in families will always be able to find that and see that. Because, of course, with it comes a kind of an emotional peace and, and, and reconciliation. It's a religious experience, uh, beauty. And I know I'm kind of almost poaching now on the sublime and, and what is beautiful and what is sublime, but I couldn't live without it. And if I thought that my work could be understood by someone as valorizing or verifying that it's not something to be lived without, I would feel as if I made a contribution. Charles Cantalupo, Distinguished Professor Emeritus of English, Comparative Literature, and African Studies at Penn State Schoolkill, speaking with us about his recent collection of poems, Woodstock Sandal and Further Steps, issued by the Africa World Press. For more information on the web, africaworldpressbooks.com, africaworldpressbooks.com. And to learn more about Dr. Cantalupo, you can check the Penn State Schoolkill website, and that's schoolkill.psu.edu, S-C-H-U-Y-L-K-I-L-L dot P-S-U dot E-D-U. The Woodstock Sandal and Further Steps by Charles Cantalupo, and his last name is spelled C-A-N-T-A-L-U-P-O. And we spoke to him in anticipation of the broadcast today, August 15th, 53 years after the opening of the Woodstock Festival, the Woodstock Music and Art Fair in Bethel, New York. Then can I walk beside you?